Open source is an incredibly social art. Open source is innovation. Like open source is enabling. Open source is community. And open source is weird. Open source is incredibly important. Open source is hard. Open source is engaging. Open source is collaboration. Open source is like running the show. Open source is ubiquitous. Open source is, well, my life. <laughs> open source is not free. Hello, my name is Ildiko. And I'm Phil. And this is the My Open Source Experience podcast, where Phil and I will talk to open source veterans, newbies, their managers, and just really anybody who is either already involved in the open source ecosystem or would like to. This podcast will be all about the individuals, their voices, and their experiences that they've been through ever since they started to think about open source or getting involved in open source. Yes, we'll show the various different types of open source communities that are out there, some pluses and minuses, and how to navigate them. Before we dive in, let me give you some important reminders. People on the podcast participate as individuals. They do not represent any company or organization. All the thoughts and opinions are theirs. People share their stories and experiences, the way how they went through them and how they remember them and reflect how those experiences affected their lives, influenced their decisions and just changed maybe their careers or lives back then or ever since. Welcome to episode zero. In this one, you will learn a little bit about your hosts. Phil and I will share some information about our background, our career in tech, and of course, we will talk a lot about open source. Enjoy the show. Well, Ildiko, here we are, starting off a first podcast. So you want to uh, introduce yourself? Yes, Phil. I'm Ildiko Vancha. I am currently Director of Community at the Open Infrastructure Foundation. I've been in tech for... Oh, around 15 years. That sounds like a big number to me already. Um, and 10 years of that has been in or around open source, which I don't think I expected when someone asked me when I was a little kid in terms of what I want to do when I grow up. Um, that was most definitely not on the list. Um, I thought I might be a lawyer, and I think I'm happy I did not become a lawyer. So, Phil, who are you, and why do you think we are here? Uh, Phil Robb. Uh, I am currently the uh, the head of Ericsson Software Technology, which is a set of subsidiaries um, doing open source uh, community engagement and open source work, uh, in particular for the group of companies that are LM Ericsson. Uh my past in open source started with uh, Hewlett Packard in 2001, uh, starting a very fledgling Linux group uh, that had spun off of the HP UX Unix group. And so we were a little, um, a little entrepreneurial group trying to figure out if this Linux thing was going to be real uh, in the world of enterprise servers uh, back again in the early 2000s. Um, and I too, I was not really gravitating towards open source. Uh, I had heard about it. Uh, my previous uh, part of my career, uh, which started around 1983, um, so I'm old, 
but uh, I've been doing uh, operating systems internals and networking in particular uh, up and down the uh, TCP IP stack in Unix uh, type systems, both um, uh, Berkeley as well as uh, AT&T System 5 uh, from the mid 80s. Uh, and uh, again, ultimately joined Hewlett Packard in their Linux group uh, right when it was forming in 2001. And I've just found open source to be both very interesting and very counterintuitive to a lot of managers. Um, I spend a good portion of my career explaining how and why open source works the way it does and that open source best practices are actually good for a company uh, to embrace as opposed to try to fight against um, and the leverage that uh, companies can get when they engage in open source projects. Um, through the last again, 25 years, 23 years or so that I've seen open source grow, um, it's exploded a lot. There's been a lot of open source uh, projects and communities form. And, you know, open source doesn't really say much about what a community and community dynamics are, right? Open source talks about a license and specific freedoms you get with this source code around a license, but it doesn't talk about collaborative development and the best practices that have formed around collaborative development. Um, and that's what I'm here to uh, both talk about and hear from various uh, folks within the community uh, and different open source communities and how those different open source communities work and the companies that uh, the people work for, how they work um, and how they do that interaction. Uh, like I said, I think a lot of things are not intuitive um, and it's still relatively not well understood. And when a company or an individual starts working in an open source ecosystem that isn't working with best practices in some way or, or form, uh, that's their expectation. And so they actually then propagate that onto the next project that they engage in. Um, so just having an understanding of what best practices are, getting a cumulative understanding for what best practices are across a whole variety of people now who have participated for quite a while in open source. I think we can learn from each other. We can be good at articulating to those who don't understand and are kind of new. Um, so I have the hopes that having these discussions with folks and with you, Ildiko, will kind of lead us to that. And that's what I'm hoping that we get out of this. And when it comes to what we are doing here and why we are chatting on this podcast, um, I am a really big open source enthusiast. I I really kind of fell into it, but we will talk about that a little bit more later. And ever since I kind of learned what open source really is and, and started to participate, I just started to care more and more about the communities, the ecosystem, the open source principles, and... Um, I also had some challenges, joys and ups and downs, and just had to realize that it's not necessarily as simple as it looks. And everyone has a very different experience when it comes to open source. And that's true if you're participating in a community, that's true if you're working for a company who is using open source or trying to participate, trying to figure this out. And I also realized that there is a lot of information out there in terms of, you know, what open source is, 
what the implications are, how to do this, but it's not always that easy to uh, apply that to your context, to where you are, what you are trying to do. So um, we are kind of here to uh, to talk to people who are in contact or affected by open source in any means and see how their experience has been just to put open source into a more human and sometimes maybe a bit personal context. Um, was HB your first open source experience? It was, it was. Outside of, I remember I was looking through a Linux book in probably 1996 or so at a, uh, at a bookstore and a guy passed by and said, Oh, Linux, uh, do you do Linux? And I, and I looked at him and said, I don't really understand why I would ever write code for free. So no, I'm not working on Linux. I'm still a, I'm still a, a Unix guy. Um, <laughs> obviously, obviously that opinion changed over time, but I do remember that as my first interaction with somebody about, mm. about open source. Um, and yeah, I've, I've, I've learned a lot and come a long way since then. That's for sure. <laughs> I love that. That's a good one. I wouldn't, I don't understand why I would, I would write code for free. Do you, do you have a grasp on when that started to change that thought was like immediately ish when, when you were at HP getting involved in, in things or did it take longer? Yeah, I mean, as, as a fledgling group, we were doing everything. I mean, I was in the middle, within the first two months of working, I was in the middle of doing negotiations with Red Hat to um, have them productize a version of Red Hat that would work on the Itanium processor, which was just under construction and just being released um, very shortly after I started. Um, and that identifying how different Linux distributions worked, why they existed, um, and then learning the culture of the developers that were part of our team that were also well-reputed and well-placed in the Linux kernel ecosystem. Um, that was that was all fascinating to me. And so that's, that is where I gained an appreciation for it. Like I said, it was, it's mostly because it's so non-intuitive. Um, and those rules are, it's very much a meritocracy. And in the end, when you step back and look at it, it's actually a much better way to develop software, which is why I would argue that Linux is, you know, somewhere older than 30, um, I guess 32 at this point. Um, and it doesn't have anywhere near the cruft and the, the, the non-used code that exists in any of the Unixes that I would describe because the way they were built is different. Um, and there are forces in open source ecosystems that make the code remain um, better and cleaner uh, with less technical debt uh, because everybody has to work with that code. Um, so it is different. In your experience, um, were others at, at HP more on board with open source or did everyone go through a, a similar journey as, as you did or maybe struggled um, even more with kind of getting a, a grasp on why things are working in a particular way in the community. What is this whole thing about? It's great that we are grabbing the code, but why would we ever put anything back in there? 
unless the license obviously specifically says so. Right, right. I mean, and it was and it was a common. I mean, I think the terms we use are, are poor, right? Because it's a contribution, right? And contribution connotes charity, right? We're giving something of value away for free because of some good cause, right? Or or what have you. And that's not really what's going on here. It is very much, you know, company self-interest. Uh, I can remember in the early days as our fledgling uh, Linux team was growing inside of HP, we had new managers that had come from other parts of, of, of HP and they had no idea. Uh, in, interestingly enough, this particular story is about going to an event. Um, one of the significant events of the day was actually in Australia, which is a long flight from Colorado, which is where I am. Um, and so, you know, we were going to send like 20 developers to this conference and it was very expensive. And, uh, we had management approval cause they understood, but my peers, new managers that had been brought into the group were like, why, why am I going to send my people for a week, you know, to this far flung place. And when, you know, <laughs> I'm going to bump my schedules of getting stuff done because we can't afford this time. And, uh, the most, the most impactful thing I think that happened was again, my management said, you managers are also going to go to this conference. And he made them <laughs> go to this conference and fly around the world to go to <laughs> Australia um, as part of their job. And they were reluctant, certainly didn't see the point before they went. By the end of day two, they were like, oh my God, I can't believe all the things that you learn here. It's just, they were just flabbergasted and shocked with how much they actually were able to learn. Um, and what their developers were learning, right. And the connections that they were making. And it was, it just clicked for them. And I would have never thought that before it happened, but once it did, it was, they were so much easier to work with and they so understood why you would do these things that help the community, not just your company, because in the end it turns around and it ultimately helps your company. In the end, you're going to need that feature that somebody else wants to build that you're not really interested in. But if you have responsibility for that code base, because you're a committer um, or maintainer, then helping to get them to do that in the end will help you down the road. Um, so it's just, yeah, it was, it, that was a very fascinating learning experience for me and how to teach people. So one thing to take away from this, from my perspective is, you know, work to get your management to actually attend one of these events um, and understand what comes out of it. Um, and so that was my introduction. How about you? What was yours? I'm pretty sure that I heard about open source or the term that we use in Hungarian um, because I'm from Hungary. So that's my first language. Um, but I don't think I ever really realized what that meant in practice uh, before I actually uh, got in contact with a community. So that was when I was working for Ericsson, of all companies. Um, and um, I started at Ericsson to work on a, on a test project and um, didn't really, that didn't really excite me as much as I thought it it would. So I heard that there is a new project starting um, in the virtualization and cloud area. And um, I really liked the that that technology area uh, back in, in university. So um, I was like, okay, virtual machines, I've heard of that before. So that must be more fun. And I joined that project and then I was told that there is this cloud software, it's called OpenStack. And I think it was the um, 
Grizzly Folsom or Grizzly release 10 years ago. And um, so we were told that this is what we will be using as the base for the the telecom cloud platform that our team and department was working on at that time. And then I also learned that, okay, OpenStack is, is an open source project. Cool. Whatever that means, right? I uh, I remember that um, once I learned and we all learned in, in the team that open source means that there are people working for different companies uh, or employed by different companies uh, who are all working on this big set of uh, software projects called OpenStack, then, then things really became interesting, at least to me, because I am an introvert and I'm also kind of a shy person and um, jumping into uh, an open source community with hundreds or rather thousands of developers working on it per release cycle, which is six months. Um, probably not a place for a, for an introvert shy person. Um, and um, at the same time, I'm also really um, competitive and ambitious. So um, you, you can only imagine what might go down in my brain on a daily basis because of these different, very conflicting <laughs> characteristics. Um, not always a nice place, but um, but it really did help me to, um, to just get into the middle of it. And uh, when it comes to really getting involved, I remember going to um, Portland, uh, for the OpenStack Summit in 2013, that was my first overseas trip, uh, first time in the U.S., and it was a it was a big conference. I don't <laughs> think I've been to a conference that size before, and the conference had the the usual conference parts in terms of. Uh, you know, presentations, panel discussions, and the regular conference session things, as I learned uh, since then that this is what conferences do. And it also had something that was called Design Summit, which was um, sessions behind really big curtains. And uh, that was um, a space that was dedicated to developers and well, not not necessarily just developers, but anybody who was doing anything within the project teams who was working on software, documentation, testing, whatever that that goes into um, making a project work. And uh, I remember going back there and not understanding a single thing that was going on. <laughs> um, but what I did understand is, uh, or was the team dynamics in terms of who does what in the in the project team that that I knew that I will have to get involved in because again that was the the software component that my team at Ericsson uh, was set to work on so it only made sense to make sure that we all do understand what's going on on the open source side and that little project team who's working on the code because everyone assumed that at some point we want to change something or fix something. And um, I did 
get the understanding very early on that those changes are not something that you want to do locally in your environment. Because if that's the only place where the fix exists, then whatever happens upstream, that will that will not fit together. And um, it is something that that just seems so trivial. But when it comes to the the product lifecycle, the time to market, and all these kind of challenges of we have to fit that open source component into something that has a different timeline, it's it's not as trivial as it looks. But at that time in Portland, the only thing that that my colleagues who were also, a few colleagues who were there and and myself we were only tasked with tasked with to just figure out what the heck is going on and i think we went home and we said that we have no idea but it was really busy um that that's kind of how far we got in reality um but i did have a few people in mind who were like okay i know who the project lead is I know I kind of saw a few people who who seemed to be really nice to, well, both people in the team and people who they didn't know yet. Um, so people who, who would mentor a newcomer. And mm-hmm. you just kind of figure out the environment and see who you would ask on the community's communication channels for OpenStack that was IRC. These days, more communities like to hang out on places like Matrix or Slack or you name it. Um, And it's, if that's the first place where you go, like, okay, how do I even ask a question? Like, who do I talk to? What's, What's going on? So I was really lucky because I could go to the conference and at least kind of starting to find the people. Another one of those non-intuitive points. Right, which is many developers are introverts or much more comfortable with just themselves or a very small group of folk, uh, as opposed to you know negotiating and having the politics of a technical decision-making process. Right, I mean, being able to articulate a point of view and empathize with those that are also part of the community and what they're trying to do to find that compromise. That's these are political soft skills. Um, and you know, developers, certainly I went into being a developer because I didn't want to deal with people. Um, I was much better at dealing with machines than people. Um, and so, you know, having that political acumen, uh, again, an empathy to be able to understand what others are needing. And so to be able to put your desires and your feature needs into terms that are beneficial to, again, the whole community and not just your company, that's that's a soft skill, right? And being able to do that and being able to build that external professional network means that those developers end up becoming significant assets to the companies that they work for. And the companies advocating that they actually build that network and build that level of connection so that it's easier for them to get features in, it's easier for them to get bugs fixed, they end up meeting more people in different communities that gives them a broader reach to be able to do those types of things for the for the benefit of their company. All of those are um, things that don't get the next feature out the door faster, um, which is what the companies are normally looking for. So it's that investment in the developers and the recognition of that accrual of value in that developer by letting them, um, if they have the acumen and the and the aptitude, right? Not everybody wants to be a politician in, in technical matters, right? But when you find the developers that do, 
um, that's something you want to cherish and protect and nurture. Um, and that too is a, it's a, it's a counterintuitive thing I find when, when talking with a lot of, a lot of folks inside of uh, large organizations, um, that that's not really well understood. And that's an important aspect to be, again, to be nurtured. Yeah. And, and when I talk about, um, uh, the, the, the non-intuitive aspects from a business leader standpoint. Um, you know, one of the early challenges that I had with, uh, with HP was we were going to put out a, a brand new server and this new server had a new networking board and this server was going to run both Windows, uh, HP UX, Unix, as well as Linux. So it had a three operating system model. And the Linux portion was about uh, 20, 25% was what they were estimating would be the sales uh, for this server. Um, and very, very late in the distribution of this server, there was a bug found in one of these, in, in this most famous network card or most popular network card for this type of server. Um, and it was a bug in the firmware. <laughs> and they looked at it, you know, and they figured out, okay, so if we just rewrite the driver a little bit so that we don't act, uh, access this particular feature on the firmware, we'll be okay. Um, so they went to the Windows team, said, hey, please fix this driver so that it doesn't do this on this card. Windows folks said yes. Went to the Unix folks and HPUX. Unix folks said yes. Came to the Linux team and said, would you, would you make this change so that this driver doesn't access this particular firmware feature? And we said, yeah, sorry, can't do that. We, uh, you, you know, Tell us when your firmware is fixed because uh, otherwise we're not going to be able to ship that card with Linux. And that caused quite a stir. It actually went all the way to the CEO. Um, because that was counterintuitive. You make this simple fix to get this product out so that you have time to market. Because anytime you're not making time to market is dollars lost for the company. Um, so we had to explain to the CEO of HP at the time, which was Carly Fiorini uh, at the time, um, that if we were to do this or try to do this, um, well, first we would have to get that fix put into, and that driver change, put up into the Linux kernel community because we were working with Red Hat and Red Hat has a policy of only pulling from the upstream open source community. And this is part of the reason why. Um, so we would have to actually put that change into uh, the Linux community and it would immediately get rejected because in the principle of keep it simple and uh, don't aspire to any technical debt that isn't really, really necessary, um, it was just a standard policy that you don't make an, you know, an if death type of a statement that works around a piece of hardware failure. It's just, it's bad form. Uh, and I can tell you from looking at codes such as HPUX and other Unixes that after 20 years of development, they have a whole bunch of cruft like that. And everybody's afraid to touch it because it's old and they don't even know if those cards still exist or not. Um, so that type of cruft just makes software very difficult to maintain. So having a very technical excellence policy of we don't just don't allow that period. Um, and we, so we had to explain that to the CEO and we had to tell, tell her that, you know, if we were to try this, not only would it not be accepted, but the person who tried to submit it would lose his reputation as a quality engineer, you know, trying to protect the simplicity and the quality of Linux. And so anything that that person would try to submit in the future was going to be scrutinized very closely. So he would lose reputation and that would be ultimately very bad for, for Hewlett Packard. And so that, that's a counter to an intuitive example. Um, you know, I've got another one where uh, we, we had a developer who had to slow down a release of one of our products to help a competitor at Dell. This was also at Hewlett Packard. But we had to explain to the manager who was, who was pushing back on this that 
Um, if we didn't let this happen, you know, ultimately we also needed this feature. It was just, we only needed it, you know, about six to eight months from, from when it would be introduced with Dell introducing it instead of us. But if we didn't help them along the way with exactly what it would look like, mentor them as to what would be the right way to implement this particular feature um, in this, in this particular standard, then we would ultimately uh, pay the price for that. And we would have to do a big rewrite. It would cause all kinds of uh, turmoil in the community and everything would just take long. So if we just paused, helped our competitor do this collaborative thing in the open that we were ultimately going to need, you know, our life would be much better um, and our delivery schedule would be less impacted in the long term by allowing this to happen. It's counterintuitive, right? but it's looking at the long view as opposed to the short view um, and technical excellence and how that pays off in the future. For me, those are some of the best practices around open source communities and that creation when you have multiple companies working in the same community it means that no one company can dominate a release schedule for a marketing or time to market reason as opposed to technical excellence and i know that that also frustrates business leaders very much when they can't figure out exactly what features at what time frame some piece of open source software is going to be delivered but the reason for that is because technical excellence takes precedence and in the long run less technical debt is better corporate politics it was hard um i got involved in another community opnfe um what it was called at that time open platform for network function virtualization i still remember what the acronym was um <laughs> was all about and uh in that community that was more well, as the name suggests, in the networking space. So that was a community that was in prime interest for telecom operators and vendors. And telecommunications, when was this? Seven, eight, nine years ago? Let's say seven, eight, around that time. 2014 is when OPNV started. Well, okay, then nine. Okay, I had it in there. Um, so nine years ago, and... Um, I got involved from the earlier days. So I did, I was one of the people who were helping that community to form, figure out the processes. And um, I, I contributed to the, to that community a lot um, based on my experience from OpenStack because the OpenStack community was working very well. So we borrowed a couple of things from there. And I was helping to, you know, drive those initiatives through. And because I did, I built trust in that community very fast and to the management up to the head of the the PDU code name for the org that I don't think exists anymore. Um, they just didn't understand what was going on. Like, yeah, not, not much. They understood that I was involved. They understood that people were listening to what I was saying. And that was frightening. I mean, to them. Not to me. I really enjoyed it. Like, you know, we're building a community. This is great. We have things that are working and I'm helping them. And it's so amazing. Um, they felt good. I felt good. Everybody felt good. My managers, they, they did not feel good. I mean, my immediate manager, yeah, they were they were happy. They kind of got the idea. But and, um, at one point, it actually got to the level of me being threatened that I can't go to one of the OPNFE summits because who knows what I'm going to say there. And I'm like, when have I ever said anything that was bad for this company? 
Like they did not understand how me doing all the work for the community and building that trust was reflecting back to the company as well. Because if you are a trustworthy person who's looked at that you're helping the community, that you have the community's interest in mind. And at the same time, obviously, I was trying to make sure that my company was positioned well, but the management didn't understand that. So from the internal management's perspective, I was a threat, which was to me very interesting because it showed me that I'm obviously really bad at internal corporate politics, right? Like I obviously did not get that one right. <laughs> and but no, part but of it's, it's, yeah, and and I disagree. <laughs> I I don't I don't think you got it wrong, but you're hitting upon something else that is so very counterintuitive about open source. You know, before is that true? So I was far enough up in the organization at Hewlett Packard. So I was a manager of managers at that point. Um, and to engage in presentations and talking to the various types of um, vloggers and anybody else that, that actually participates in open source projects. When I was doing that at Hewlett Packard, and this is, this is you know 2012 and earlier, I went through press training because that's what you do in a company setting, right? Developers don't speak publicly about what their company is doing, why they're involved in a project, where they would like the project to go. They don't speak in those terms because those, and in part because quite frankly, the developers don't know, right? They know a relatively small piece of the overall corporate strategy. So those that are in charge of corporate messaging and from that high level, um, that's, that's their domain, right? Developers stay internal. Um, they don't talk about what it is they're doing because that's all proprietary and that's, that's the mindset, right? So, I mean, when you've got an organization that's just starting out into this foray, I, I fully appreciate and understand where they were coming from. It wasn't, you know, it was wrong in a sense, but, but it's just, it's, it's a level of trust between managers and their their developers because in the end the managers don't have any influence in those projects and if they want to be successful they have to let their developers build that reputation and that that influence and that's the only way it comes right and so that's again very counterintuitive this is this is not the way corporate managers or anybody in that corporate space ever was taught how to run a business, right? That's not what you do, but that's why I find open source very intriguing. And, you know, your example is just, it's, it's, it's point on, you know, I, I fully appreciate the frustration you went through and I fully appreciate the trepidation your managers had <laughs> because they didn't understand, you know? And so that's, it's a dialogue and it's a trust. You know, I mean, we, we were in at HP, think about the situations where we were building, um, code in the Linux kernel to enable an entirely brand new processor type. Okay. This was, this was an, this was an Epic based processor. It wasn't risk. It was an entirely different architectural concept. That was a joint venture between Intel and HP. So much secret, so much, so much non-disclosure agreements. Everybody signed between these two companies, right. To make this new processor. Yet we have to enable that processor putting code out in the public. And we have to have developers do that, 
you know, and answer questions. Well, why'd you do it this way? Well, you know, so, I mean, we, we, we went through a lot of education and describing, you know, what's important to keep close and what's okay. And, 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 and fine to share with the public and what the timing of those look like, because ultimately everything come, becomes public. But that timing was important to both Intel and to HP at the time. Um, and so doing that and educating the developers because they were our mouthpiece, they were our, the only way this platform was going to work on Linux was if these developers convinced the community that this interesting new architecture that nobody had ever seen a chip for uh, was something that they needed to support. Um, and the Linux community um, said yes. And, and I'll make a quick side note to say that Linus hated the Itanium architecture. And he's he just as recently as last year, he made comment to that effect. Um, he always considered it too expensive and something that the normal developer is never going to run on his desktop. And if that's the case, it's never going to receive widespread adoption. Um, in the end, I, he kind of turned out to be right. Um, but, you know, he still also didn't stop us from building it um, and adding it to the kernel and he and his kernel, it's still in there, right? I mean, and and, and folks that work with that platform still support it. Um, but that was part of the mantra of if it doesn't hurt anybody else in the community um, and somebody wants to bring this contribution, you let them, right? That was one of those fundamental principles that I learned from the Linux community and that I hold as part of the gold standard. Um, but Yeah, I mean, that, we, that letting go of control part, Right. Yeah. I mean, and, and, you know, it, it was, it was, it was HP and Intel's responsibility to make sure that things got refactored as necessary to allow for that new platform. And, you know, that was on us, right. To be able to add it. And that's also part of that best practice is yes, it's accommodated, but you have to do the lifting to make it so that your, your feature set that you want works, but it doesn't hurt anybody else's feature set. And so that often refactoring and that kind of work is necessary, additional testing, et cetera, et cetera. Right. But that's, was that hard to push through? No, I had very clueful management. So the people who were in charge of that Linux group, um, very, very clueful. Uh, they were very good and they had the trust of their management to do this and do it and succeed. And we did. Um, you know, when we launched, you know, the expectation, the, the, the whole point behind that processor was it ran Windows, Unix, and Linux. And when we launched, the expectation for marketing was that it was, you know, 80% Unix, 15% um, uh, Windows, and maybe uh, Linux would get 5%. Um, in the end, when we launched our first servers on that platform, it was about 35% Linux, about 40% Unix. And another whatever 20 25 percent microsoft um mm -hmm. so linux was a much larger piece of the sales of those units um than hp thought and uh, yeah our ability to get that in and to also again as i said working with red hat to to work to get them to actually create a version that supported it those were all very strategically uh, important components that made that product line successful when we launched but yeah, yeah, it was yeah. a balance, you know, it's a balance of making it work in the open source as well as, you know, working towards your commercial need. So you were introduced to open source in the OpenStack project. I was, a, I was introduced in, in the Linux project. Um, talk a little bit about, 
now that you've had more experience and have seen the way other communities operate as well, talk a little bit about the values and the pillars of the four opens. Because you know, OpenStack for me was an interesting project at that time in 2013 because it was very focused on having the four opens, having that, again, not just an open source license, but a truly open collaborative type of environment where developers could come together. It was also interesting because in 2013, it was the hottest project out there uh, with many, many companies trying to get engaged and trying to do as much as they could. And they, you know, OpenStack is, is an example back in that time period of, of a project struggling under its own weight, meaning that there were so many blueprints that were submitted um, and so many PRs that were submitted for, for consideration that those that had responsibility for doing the reviewing were overwhelmed and it took quite a while. And that was a, that was a, a hindrance to the uptake of OpenStack because of its difficulty in reacting to so much participation and so much enthusiasm. So it, it had some great community and cultural aspects. It also had some, some tactical struggles. So talk a little bit about how that actually shaped what, you know, you see as being best practice in open source and talk maybe a little bit about how you see some contrast in, in other projects or the value of those four opens that, that you saw with OpenStack. Okay, um, I think this is like 10 questions in one. So I will start with the four <laughs> opens and then see where that goes. Um, so for anyone who doesn't know, the four opens is a set of guiding principles that both the OpenStack project as well as the uh, now Open Infrastructure Foundation and its project are truly guiding principles and the, the pillars that, that we rely on. The four opens are open source, open community, open design and open and development, and I really hope I didn't butcher any of them. Um, so open source- Sorry, I put you on the spot there for that. Um, every now and then I say open collaboration as opposed to open community, and then I scratch my head and I correct myself. And um, yeah, this is just how close those two words are, both in, in terms of meaning and not just uh, the actual letters that that make, make um, those words. So, um, Open source is kind of the more defined one out of the four. So uh, we usually don't really spend much time explaining it. Uh, we can go into licensing and the uh, um, availability of the source code and what you can do with it. Um, that open source is kind of the pillar that you couldn't really leave out of the four opens when it's about open source in, in any shape or form. Um, so open source is about the uh, again the the license and the availability of the code and artifacts and the other three pillars are really what make collaboration up I think um, in the sense that you have open community to um, to really state that a community has to uh, be a, a welcoming environment. They have to be open to uh, to have anyone joining and participating, and uh, and work on the shared goals that that particular community has. Um, and when it comes to the other two, open design and open development, um, those are pointing to the processes that the communities are using in terms of. Um, making sure that 
all the information and the process is open and available to anyone to participate. Like if if you have a new feature in mind, wow. I I had to go and introduce the feature at a design summit. It was not a mandatory step, but it was one of the forums where you could talk to the team and say that, oh, I had this great idea. <laughs> and um and then after that, creating the blueprint, talking to the team and really anyone who opened that that Garrett review page with the blueprint, um, they they had a say that, oh, I don't like this design. I think it is uh, there's a flaw in it or I don't think that it's compatible with most of the different most of the similar APIs out there and it's not a great idea to defer that much or for whatever reason that they didn't like something in it they had a say in it everyone was able to see what's going on and contribute to why it is a good or a bad idea or or how you could implement it in a, in in the most uh you know, robust and uh, good way um, possible based on the understanding that we all had at that at that time about you know coding best practices and and design principles and whatnot so um, in order for, for your community to be truly open uh, people have to be able to find the information and, and participate in the conversation in terms of where where a feature idea is coming from, what it is, how it's planned to be implemented. And every now and then someone might show up and say that, oh, hey, can I participate in the implementation? We desperately need this thing too. And maybe if we do it together, it will be done faster. So um, people can only do this if the whole design process is open and then open development is when you actually agree that okay this is what we are going to do this is how it's supposed to look like and this is roughly what needs to change when it comes to the implementation phase and again the implementation phase have to be open as well um, OpenStack has been using Garrett as code review system you can do the same thing on GitHub or now GitLab and many other places um, Git is the I think these days, one of the most popular um, version control systems out there. Um, so many communities are, are using either the same tools or very similar tools and processes, but it has to all be open. Like when it comes to contributing code, um, you make a change uh, that turns into a comment in Git, and then you upload it for review, which means that um, anyone is supposed to be able to see what that change is, whether they are part of the project team where you're proposing this change or just a random person at some random part of the planet who has internet connection and stumbled onto the link for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. And... Um, not just having access to to see what the change is going to be, but also being able to add comments and say like, uh, okay, why did you implement it this way? Um, why did you choose to, I don't know, name your variable to something that's like three sentences long? It's not, it's not the greatest idea. 
like uh, maybe you should add some code comments or maybe you should not add some code comments just write really clean codes there are many people out there with very different experience in terms of how to write code very different opinions and it sometimes gets almost religious um but at the same time um again people have the opportunity to say something and the author of the code change has the opportunity to learn a lot like even if a suggestion is not going to be used you're still learning something about someone else's coding style and you know maybe you realize that oh actually I like that too but I it didn't occur to me that I could do it that way and um and when it comes to the four opens um for for um the opening for foundation communities it is it is really fundamental because i think everyone understands at some point that if you keep things back and you keep things close it's just going to hurt you it's going to hurt your community and um at some point the realization comes that okay maybe maybe that's not the right way to to go if i want to keep um uh, using open source maybe i should participate and if i participate maybe i should not do it with with half steam because it's not working that way and um that that's really the first step towards the support communities to uh, to grow and 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 build environments where open collaboration is truly possible right. and you kind of need those four opens for that to be possible and i think we will have a lot of episodes that that are going into the details of what happens when when a person or or a company or a community is not not operating in a way that fits into the four opens. I'm not saying that that the four opens is like the bible and everybody has to go by then, but you you can at the same time you can realize, you can see when um when something is operating in a way that would not be compatible with the four opens if you checked and how it's how it's not working because one of those fundamental components are missing. Right. Right. And yeah, and, and like I said at the beginning, you know, the point of the podcast for me is really the other three pillars besides open source, right? It's it's really about what are best practices for open collaboration and why is why are those best practices the beneficial for everybody? Um, right. I think control is one of the key points that we see um, where it's a struggle because it's somewhat of the nature of of individuals and companies to want to control their destiny, want to control something that they're that they're actively working in, um, and it's the removal of that control and the letting go of that control that actually provides for a community with a level playing field. Because by definition, if a company has more control than other companies in the in the in the ecosystem, then um, that's ultimately not going to foster a good community and. It is the network effect of all of those different companies and many different companies working together on diverse needs, um, and it's the aggregation of that that is so often really the best benefit of any given open source project, um, right down to the technical excellence, right, and, and how you do the test cases for across the board. Um, so yeah, that's again what I'm hoping to to get out of uh, the discussions that we have with the various folks that we can uh, we can 
learn from their experience as we bring them in and, and, and talk to them on this podcast. Do you want to uh, to share something about yourself that uh, maybe isn't uh, technical or um, mm-hmm. something about open source? Tell us a little bit about uh, about you. Okay. Um, there's one thing that kind of influenced my professional life in a very unexpected way. I um, I was a bartender for well two and a half years overall. I had one place I worked for I think two years, and then um, and then for the next half year, I I had a few more places where I just popped by, but this was not the full time job. I did have a an IT job um, full time, um, and I was a bartender in addition, like three, two or three nights a week. Um, I did not sleep a lot. It might not have been the best idea to do the two together, um, but um, that just kind of had a big impact on my overall life, just really starting to stand up for myself. Interestingly enough, the most annoying people are not the drunk guests at a, or customers at a bar, but your own colleagues. There was one guy who particularly loved yelling, and the first place I worked I like we had 12 to 14 to 15 hour nights. I looked at one of the other new girls. I'm like, let's see if we can make him yell enough to lose his voice by the morning. <laughs> I mean, you can you can go two ways. One, take it really personally and become like a shadow of yourself and feel this little. But I honestly up until today don't really understand where that where where that thought and just like what made me um just really flip flip the switch my mother up until today doesn't understand how i can get up on stage and give presentations i i was part of a keynote demo once that was watched live like three thousand people were in the audience that day (laughs) it's not who i was when i grew up i grew up on a farm as an only child like you know i was friends with the cats and i think in part in parallel to that just because i love 18 wheelers or semis or big trucks whatever you call it Mm -hmm. um i also got a driver's license uh, to be able to drive them not commercially you need extra paperwork for that <laughs> so how about you um i think for me the, the the characteristic i would draw out is just one of of uh, diverse experiences um i've been a professional drummer i spent 10 years in the national guard six in the air force four in the army um so do lots of different sports, play lots of different things, uh, like to travel a lot, um, you know, try to be as proficient as possible as at as many mechanical and um, uh, home project type of things. I spent two years, uh, two summers during college as a um, framing carpenter. So I, I like collecting skills. Um, <clears throat> I too, I don't think, well, the performance aspect, you know, when you when you're a drummer, you end up being on stage a lot. And you're a professional musician, you're on stage, and so you get comfortable being on stage. Um, and so that's that's all good. But I, I think diversity of of 
activities and again, trying to see as many places and meet as many people and being in as many different situations as possible is something that I've always been drawn to. Um, I guess I'll also make the statement. I, I like hanging out with software developers and construction workers um, are my <laughs> two, uh, <laughs> they, are, they are my two favorite type of people um, just because they like to build things. You know, they like to build things and they like to see people use the things that they build. Um, and I like that mentality. I find those are folks that are very much down to earth. Um, and, uh, they have that creativity spark. Uh, they aren't really after making a bunch of money. They want to be comfortable and they want to be safe and, you know, that's all good. Um, but, uh, but it's more about what they get to build and how people get to use what they build that really drives them. Um, and having those conversations and having that type of mentality, that's what I like. So that's where I spend my time. Um, and open source really kind of gravitates towards that, right? You get to see those types of developers that are just really passionate about building something that's cool that other people use. And that's why I stayed. Um, and then I've personally found it always fascinating trying to explain to managers why they should do something in an open source way and vice versa, explain to an open source ecosystem why a company behaves in a particular way and where that common ground is. So building that bridge, I, I enjoy building that bridge. Um, and so that's where I try to spend as much time as I possibly can. Um, so that's that's what I enjoy and what drove me to this kind of an, this kind of thing, this kind of life. And Phil is also a great cook. Um, if you, <laughs> I do like to get... cook too. It's true. Yeah, and then you can you can cook to like a um, big number, like big groups of people. I, yeah, I can... I'll do things for 150, 200 people. I'll be comfortable with that. That's those don't scare me anymore. You know, the first time you do it, you're you know, a little, you know, a little anxious. But uh, but no, I it's a project. It's it's an action. It's an activity in project management, right? And timing and, you know, you build your little, you build your little in your brain, you, you build your little project chart on what your dependencies are and what your parallel things are. <laughs> you, uh, it is, it's just a project management activity, but yeah, I do like to cook. Yeah. So if Phil invites you to barbecue, <laughs> don't say no, you would be missing out on a lot. Oh, well, thank Good. you. that that's all folks that was our episode for today i really hope that you enjoyed the show this season is full of very interesting topics like open sourcing academia mentorship programs how you design and develop infrastructure in a project together with thousands of people and a really interesting one money in open source stay tuned because the next episode is just around the corner <laughs> you know, that, that was my first experience. Oh, I loved it. Uh, Y'all had, had me telling stories that I haven't even thought about. And... Thank you so much for having me here. It was a pleasure. Like, I will have coffee with the two of you any day for the rest of my life. Like. <laughs> <laughs>